Do you know what time it is? It's time for some sex ed. <laughs> Welcome to the Lady Parts Doctor podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie Hack, the Lady Parts Doctor, and thank you so much for joining me today. Last week, we talked about updates in the first week since the fall of Roe v. Wade, and there was a lot to talk about. There's a lot still to talk about because things are ever-changing, and we are continuing to learn how the legal environment is changing and also how the medical environment is changing. I mean, I was reading an article today talking about the increased distrust of healthcare professionals since the fall of Roe v. Wade in states where um, there are more restrictions on abortion. And, you know, that was concerning and upsetting to me because as healthcare providers, we work very hard to foster a relationship of trust. It is not only necessary, but it is essential for us to provide good, appropriate care for you and your needs. So, so many things are changing. I had a lot of conversations with you about it and just, it was really interesting to hear people's takes on it. And people are scared, right? Patients are scared. Providers are scared. So it's just so important that we turn these feelings into action because you are never powerless. You always have a choice. That choice can be to give up, but that choice can also be to fight for your rights, to make your voice heard. So it was good to have those conversations to you as we figure out our new roles and how to make our voices heard and to make sure that our rights are respected. So this week, I wanted to talk about something in the same vein, but not specifically abortion, okay? You know, as an OBGYN, my primary goal for your pregnancies, and you know, I say for your pregnancies, we, I am only providing medical information for you. I'm not your OBGYN. But when we have these conversations, I just want it to feel as like, intimate as possible that we are having this one-on-one conversation. So my primary goal for your pregnancies has been primary intervention. What's that? That's to keep you from getting pregnant until you are ready or willing to be pregnant. And as expected, my secondary goal is secondary intervention. If you get pregnant to help you determine your options and support you in your decision, whatever that may be. This has primarily been a conversation between you and I, as it should be. But as the climate around us changes, making decisions without outside intervention is becoming increasingly difficult. However, my role, my role has not changed. Our options have changed. I've been trying to figure out how I can best support you and 
help you support others, which means I've been doing a lot of reading, right? I came across an article in USA Today today, uh, stating that many states with abortion restrictions emphasize abstinence as the main or only way to avoid getting pregnant. I mean, are you surprised by this? No, I'm not surprised by this. Sex education in schools is largely funded and therefore decided um, at the state and local level. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of variation. For example, according to a SICA's Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States um, chart, Alabama does not mandate sex education, although it does mandate that HIV and STI information, sexually transmitted infection information, and some healthy relationship information be provided. These must be age appropriate in Alabama. On the other side, California mandates sex education, HIV and STI information, and comprehensive health relationship education, which must be age and culturally appropriate and medically accurate. So as you can imagine, just because you're getting information doesn't mean you're getting the proper information, doesn't mean you're getting accurate information. But the ultimate goal overall is to mandate education in each of these topics that is age and culturally appropriate, medically accurate, and also evidence-based. Why is comprehensive sex education so important? A 2008 study by Kohler et al. found that teens between the ages of 15 and 19 who received comprehensive sex education had a lower risk of pregnancy than those who received abstinence only or no sex education. Beyond pregnancy, they also found that teaching about contraception was not associated with an increased risk of sexual activity or STI. And we have to mention that because a lot of times people think, well, if the kids are learning about sex, that's going to make them want to have sex. Well, newsflash, the kids are wanting to have sex because they're seeing sex, hearing about sex, and they're going through puberty. And I don't know if you remember what it feels like to be going through puberty and to be that age. It's like, what, the end of middle school, high school, your hormones are all over the place. So it's not the sexuality and the sex ed education that is the sex education that is getting teens to have sex or getting young people to have sex. It's that they want to have sex. So you really want to make sure that they're equipped, okay? All right, and it's not just about pregnancy and STIs. Comprehensive sex education teaches you about puberty, anatomy, sexual orientation, and gender identity. These are things that they didn't talk about for us, right? And for some of us, that was perfectly fine. We didn't need to see representation. We didn't need to hear those additional things. But for some of us, we're left feeling left out because we're trying to understand how we fit in. So that information is important. It teaches you about relationships with yourself, your family, friendships, romantic relationships, and with your healthcare providers. Isn't this something we all want and need? Can't you think back to a time when you wish you discussed this information with someone before finding yourself in need? I think of all the conversations I've had with patients regarding accessing healthcare and times they felt misinformed or misled by partners or by us as healthcare providers. I'm sure they would have benefited from these discussions. So this week, we are going to do some sex education. Mm, mm, mm. We're answering some common questions that, you know, we may have had early on in our sexual lives. Of course, of course, because you know I love a Reddit. You know I love it. 
I've drawn inspiration from a Reddit post which provided a random sampling of questions that ninth graders around the ages of 14 and 15 had. And you may know the answers to some of these questions and others you may not. And that's perfect because this is exactly why we're talking about it. What happens is sometimes we never answer these questions. We never address them. We never talk about them. And then time goes by and you never get the answer. Maybe you intended to look and then eventually you get too embarrassed to talk about it. Wouldn't it be great if we could always ask these questions openly without shame and embarrassment? Wouldn't it be great though? So we're going to answer these questions in terms of being biologically female or biologically male to be as specific and clear as possible. And I'll try to avoid doing that when possible, but sometimes I just really want to make sure we're very specific and that there's no question. And I know that not everyone identifies as such. However, I hope that you find the information that pertains to you. And of course, you know, if you don't, there's always room for us to have continued conversation, to answer questions, etc. You know how to reach me, but if you don't remember, I'll give you all the information again at the end of this episode. So first question, what happens during a period? A period consists of consecutive days of bleeding, usually consecutive, that occur during your menstrual cycle. And I think to understand its purpose a little better, let's review the menstrual cycle. The menstrual cycle involves a series of hormone changes that happens over three to five weeks, 28 days on average. It starts on the first day of your period and continues until your next period starts. And so this is really good to know because often when I'm seeing a patient and I'll say, okay, how often do you get your cycle? I'm trying to figure out what their typical or their average cycle length is. And that's good for understanding their period. It's good for understanding when they ovulate. It's good to understand if they're ovulating. So sometimes they'll tell me, oh, seven days. That's not really their cycle length. They're telling me how long their period lasts, how many days they bleed, but their cycle length is actually something else. 28 days on average. And for the most part, normally, um, it can be anywhere from 21 to 35 days and falling somewhere in that is considered common quote unquote normal, um, but it can fall a little bit out of that range. There are four phases of the menstrual cycle. First phase is menstruation phase, and that's usually day one through day five. And this is the time that you're on your period. This is the time that you're bleeding. We're gonna come back to talking about that period. The second phase is the follicular phase. That's about day six through day 14. And during this time, your ovaries make estrogen, which causes a lining to build inside your uterus. And the lining's really just preparing a home for a fertilized egg. It's like, hey, let's get this uterus ready because we're going to have a baby. We're hoping a baby's coming. We'll see. And so it's preparing a home for a fertilized egg should you get pregnant during that cycle. And during that time, follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, is also telling your ovaries to make the eggs. So it's like, hey, get the home ready in the uterus and then also start getting some eggs ready. Phase three is ovulation, and that happens about day 14 if your cycle length is 28 days. During this time, there's an increase in a hormone called luteinizing hormone, LH, and it causes your ovary to release its eggs. So the ovary is getting a whole bunch of little eggs together. One of them is eventually going to mature to become the egg that's going to be released. When you ovulate, that best egg is going to be released. Most women only ovulate once 
permenstrual cycle. And then you go to the luteal phase, which is the fourth phase of the menstrual cycle. And that's about day 15 through 28. And at that time, the egg begins its journey to your uterus. Your ovaries make progesterone, which further helps prepare your uterine lining for pregnancy. So it's pro-gestation, pro-pregnancy. And it's like, hey, this home is here. We're going to maintain this home. We're going to keep it nice and tidy. Um, (laughs) That's how I like to think of it. So the progesterone is maintaining the home. It's continuing to prepare the lining of your uterus for pregnancy. And if your egg is fertilized by a sperm and it attaches to the uterine lining, congrats, you're pregnant. If it doesn't attach or it doesn't get fertilized, your hormone levels drop and the lining is shed and that causes your period. So to make a long story short, during your period, your uterus sheds its lining. There you go. (laughs) I hope that whole long explanation gave you a better understanding of exactly what's happening and also a better understanding of your menstrual cycle. What is a hymen? Question number two. So a hymen is a thin layer of tissue at the vaginal opening. You know, it's funny because when I hear people talk about the hymen, it automatically like takes me back to middle school when people started talking about sex and, you know, how they phrase it so scary and it's this and it's that. But really a hymen is just a thin layer of tissue at the vaginal opening. That's all. And there are lots of variation in its, in its appearance, but there's almost always a hole that allows for things to pass in and out of the vagina comfortably, like blood, like tampons, um, like penises, okay? We don't fully understand the purpose of the hymen, but it's thought that it was to keep bacteria or foreign objects out of your vagina. It will thin, stretch, wear down, and eventually break over time. It is not an indicator of sexual activity, and it can break from any number of things, not specifically sex. It can break from exercise, riding a bike, inserting a tampon, riding a horse. And when it breaks down, you may experience a little pain or bleeding, or you may experience nothing at all. You may never even know. Once worn down or broken, it does not grow back. Okay. And so it's important to mention those things because you'll hear people um, talk about in this like purity culture and putting the hymen back together. And no, 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 no. Once the hymen is gone, it's gone. And not having a hymen doesn't mean anything in particular. Some people aren't even born with a hymen or there's such, um, basically there's such little tissue there that it's like nothing at all. So don't base anything on that. Three, can you get pregnant from oral sex? No, you cannot. Getting pregnant requires sperm to enter the vagina and travel through the cervix and into the uterine cavity. You cannot get pregnant from swallowing semen. However, you can get STIs from oral sex. And then anytime you have semen or specifically sperm um, on the vulva, the vagina, and then there's some kind of penetration, yes, you can get pregnant from that because you'd be introducing sperm into the vagina, which allows it to make its way to the uterus. And let me tell you, our bodies are designed to try to get us pregnant. So, you know, you don't want to make it easy if at all possible. You want to make sure you're taking precautions. Next question for what happens during an erection? So some type of sexual arousal intended or unintended. And I say this because sometimes, you know, our bodies respond in a aroused way, even if it's not something that we want. Your mind is telling you one thing, your body is 
responding differently. And so I just need to say that, okay, just because your body responds one way doesn't mean that that is something that you want to happen. So some type of sexual arousal, intended or not, sends messages to the nerves in the penis, which then causes muscles, specifically the corpora cavernosa in the penis to relax. This allows blood to flow in and fill all the open spaces, which then puts pressure on the same muscles. That then causes the penis to expand and voila, you have an erection. There you go. Five, what is the point of masturbation? People masturbate for many, many different reasons. Some of these reasons include, and I would say the main reasons are it feels good and it helps them relax. Other reasons include it helps them better understand their bodies. And that's often along a path of feeling out what or determining what makes them feel good sexually, what kinds of things they want to show their partner to be able to do. And also sometimes people masturbate because it's safer than sex. Whatever leads you to masturbation, that's the point of masturbation. Six, what's an orgasm? So an orgasm is often considered the peak of sexual pleasure. During this time, your body experiences an increase in sexual pleasure that peaks in a reaction of muscle contractions and pressure release from your body and your genitalia. An orgasm is not always experienced during sex, nor is it absolutely necessary to have a meaningful sexual experience. And I know it's difficult to kind of separate orgasm from that, especially because you're watching TV and this is what's happening. People get together, they're like having sex, they have orgasm, everybody's happy and it's great. Well, we know, or if you don't know, now you know, that is not always how sex happens. Um, and an orgasm is not always going to happen. And a lot of people, you know, we have to do different things to be able to orgasm and won't necessarily orgasm with the same person every time or with certain people at all. So it's variable. Seven, can you get pregnant the first time you have sex? Yes. Yes, you can. Please refer back to our conversation about the menstrual cycle and and ovulation. But yeah, you can definitely get pregnant the first time you have sex. If you're ovulating, if your body ovulates, you can get pregnant. Eight, can you lose a condom in the vagina? A condom can slip off in the vagina, but it will not get lost. Contrary to what we sometimes think the vagina is not this never ending tunnel. I think people think, oh, it's like you reach into the vagina and you could like reach your whole arm into there. No, the vaginal canal on average is about three to six inches. And that really just depends on arousal, right? It's longer, tends to lengthen. Those muscles tend to relax during arousal. And if a condom slips off, you or your partner can use a finger to reach in and remove it. If you are unable to, you can also visit your healthcare provider for removal and we can remove it. I have taken condoms out of the vagina. I have taken forgotten tampons or tampons that have been misplaced or people haven't been able to find. I've taken those out of the vagina. They're there. They will not get lost. Nine, do condoms work and how? Yes, condoms work. External condoms, and that's specifically how we're referring to condoms that are worn on the penis versus internal condoms, which are worn in the vagina. 
External condoms work for both pregnancy and STI prevention, but the material of the condom acts as a physical barrier to sperm in certain sexually transmitted infections like HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia. Your level of protection depends on the material used. For example, lambskin condoms do not, do not protect against STIs. And that's just a material difference and the difference in the pores and spaces and the material. For lambskin condoms, they are large enough that STIs can pass through them, so they don't protect against STIs, but they can protect against pregnancy. Regarding pregnancy, condoms are about 85% effective with regular use. And regular use means... Um, condom slipping off, just all the kinds of different things that you could do with a condom that keep you from using it perfectly. With regular use, it's about 85% effective. 10. Can you have sex on your period? Yes. It is just a matter of preference. It really is just a matter of preference, but you definitely can. 11. What is the purpose of pubic hair? The main purpose, we believe, is for protection. It helps reduce friction during sex. Can you imagine like hair rubbing against hair is there's less friction versus skin rubbing against skin. It also helps keep the genital warm, genitals warm and it traps dirt, debris, and potentially harmful microorganisms. And 12, is it possible for one breast to be bigger than the other? It is not only possible, it is likely. The human body is not symmetrical. Our eyes are not symmetrical. My eyebrows are not symmetrical. (laughs) Even though I have a great eyebrow pencil and I work really hard, but they're not symmetrical. Our feet are not symmetrical and our breasts are not symmetrical. And again, you know, I have such a hard time talking about breasts without gesturing. So if you're watching this on um, YouTube, the video recording of the podcast, you'll see I just like can't help myself. One breast is always larger than the other. Sometimes it's noticeable. Sometimes it's not. And these ladies and gentlemen and everyone who identifies, however you identify, are the questions that we're answering for sex ed this week. There are a lot more questions. Um, If there are any that you can think of, please email me. Um, Or if you have comments, questions, stories at Dr. Hack, D-R-H-A-C-K at Lady Parts Doctor, L-A-D-Y-P-A-R-T-S-D-O-C-T-O-R.com to make sure I get that right. Um, Also, you can follow me on Instagram at LadyPartsDoc. That's the same on TikTok and on Twitter. And yeah, and if you have any questions about that, you can go to the website, www.LadyPartsDoctor.com and you can find all the info on how to reach me. But you know, I love it when we chat. I love when you share your stories and your thoughts. I'm trying to think if I have, I mean, I'm sure we have all kinds of stories about sex ed. I remember The first time I learned what a virgin was, was in third grade. I was seven, seven, and the kids were running around on the playground asking everybody, are you a virgin? And you had no idea what a virgin was, so you'd be like, no. And then they'd laugh in your face, and then you're like, well, I don't know what a virgin is. And then they'd say, oh, it means you've had sex, and you know, you're seven, and you're like, oh, sex, no, (laughs) appropriately so. But we're learning these things. At various ages. And I, you know, for me, this is, I'm not even going to say how many years ago, but decades ago. So you can only imagine how early we're learning this stuff now. Being able to speak positively about sex 
in a way that doesn't make us feel ashamed or embarrassed or that sex is something dirty or something not to look forward to is so important because I cannot tell you the number of patients that I see who as grown women have difficulty talking about sex or engaging in meaningful sexual relationships because of the shame um, that has been placed on sex, the stigma that has been placed on sex. So anyway, I'm getting off my soapbox. Thanks for tuning in this week. And I'm really excited about the podcast that we have next week. We have our first guest and we're talking about healing journeys. So until next time.